Welcome to Living Word Church. Let's hear from Pastor Ben as he teaches from the Gospel of John in our Eternal Word series. I've titled the message this morning, The King in Place of the Criminal. The King in Place of the Criminal. Let's pray. Father, I thank you this morning for the opportunity to gather together around your word. Lord, we do not take it lightly that we get to open your word and we get to learn from your word and hear you speak. Lord, when we open the Bible, you speak. And Lord, we submit ourselves to it. Lord, we humble ourselves before you and your authority. And I ask that you'd speak to every one of our hearts. And I ask this morning, especially that you'd help me to open my mouth, to preach your word and to exalt Christ. We pray this in Jesus name. Amen. So who do you think was or is the best sixth man in NBA, in the NBA history? You know who the best, considered the best sixth man? Do you know what a sixth man is? A sixth man is the, 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 the player who isn't in the starting five, but substitutes into the game more often than any of the other players. The sixth man, he's a substitute. Some of the most famous six men, if you're basketball players, you'll, you'll know this. You'll, you'll know these names. Robert Ory. Remember Robert Ory? He won seven titles with three different teams. His nickname was what? Who, who knows what his nickname was? Big Shot Bob. That's right. I have it written down here in my notes. Big Shot Bob. I knew somebody would know it. What about Jason Terry? Jason Terry was considered a, a great sixth man. His nickname was... The Jet, Jason Terry. Tony Kukoc. Who can forget Tony Kukoc? He wasn't a starter, but how many of you know they might not have won, the Bulls might not have won six titles without Tony Kukoc? And what about Manu Ginobili? Manu Ginobili. But the, the best, the, the greatest six man of all time, his name was John Havlicek. And he's the one that the six-man award is named after. He, he won, he's an eight-time champion with the Boston Celtics. He averaged a career average of 20.8 points per game. Six-man. Substitute. The six-man is a substitute. And in our text today, we, as we continue our journey through the Gospel of John and our, and our, our journey uh, at, we're follow, as we're following Christ to the cross, we're going to see that Jesus substitutes or takes the place of someone else. Just like a sixth man takes the place of someone else, we're going to see that Jesus takes the place of a criminal. Jesus replaces a criminal. He takes his place. And the punishment that was deserved by the criminal, Jesus takes his place. And this is our text. Just a few verses, but we're going to look at some other accounts from the Gospels about this account. In John 18, starting in verse 38, it says, And after he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. So as you see in the text, there was a custom for the Jews to release one prisoner a year at Passover. There was a custom of the Jews, with, for the Jews, by the Romans, to release one prisoner at Passover. One criminal would go free. One prisoner would be released from the payment of their crimes. And so, in, in the story of where we are, Jesus had gone to Pilate, and we looked at that last week, 
Jesus and Pilate and their interaction. And what John doesn't bring out is the interrogation between Herod Antipas, Jesus and Herod. So after Jesus is interrogated by Herod Antipas, Herod sends him back to Pilate. And so we're picking up with the second communication between Jesus and Pilate. And Pilate finds no fault in Jesus. He finds no fault and he gives the crowd that had gathered the Jewish authorities an opportunity to let this innocent man go. And we see in the text that they they don't let him go. They cry out for his crucifixion. Jesus takes the place of Barabbas. And in this exchange between Jesus and Barabbas, as Jesus takes the place of Barabbas, in this exchange we have the clearest picture, one of the clearest pictures of substitutionary atonement. We have one of the clearest pictures of what Christianity is all about. Many people can talk about what Christianity is about, and they will define it in many different ways. They'll talk about love, and that is a, a big part of Christianity. They'll talk about mercy and grace, and, or they'll talk about judgment, and all those words together of what Christianity is all about can be brought together in a discussion, in a focus on the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. That is the heart of Christianity. And what does substitutionary atonement mean? It means that Jesus became our substitute, and He atoned or He paid for our sins. Another way to call it is penal substitutionary atonement. Penalty, the penalty for sin. Penal substitutionary atonement. This is the core of what Christianity is all about. And we're going to look at multiple accounts of this exchange, this substitution between Jesus and Barabbas, and we will see the foundation of why we are even worshiping here today. So what do we see? in this exchange between Jesus and Barabbas. Well, the first thing we see is that Jesus is perfectly innocent. Jesus is perfectly innocent. Look back at the text, John 18, 30, and after he said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, Pilate told them, I find no guilt in him. Pilate had spoken to Jesus twice at this time, at this point, and John doesn't give as much detail as the other Gospels, but let's look at Matthew. What does Matthew say as we're thinking about Jesus being perfectly innocent? Matthew 27 tells us, same account, besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, speaking of Pilate, his wife sent word to him, have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Pilate's wife apparently had a dream. And in that dream, she was warned of the Lord to to warn her husband to not have anything to do with that righteous man. This man is innocent. This man is not guilty. This man is righteous. Pilate's wife warns him. The crowd cries out. Look at Mark 15. And Pilate said to them, why are you crying out? They're crying out for his crucifixion. Why? What evil has he done? What evil has he done? And Pilate presses the people three times. Look at Luke. 23, and a third time he said to them, why? What evil has he done? I find in him no guilt deserving death. So it's obvious to Pilate that Jesus is innocent. And if you think about it, in comparison to Barabbas, it's obvious that Jesus is innocent and Barabbas is guilty. It's obvious and he can see, listen, he can see behind why the Sanhedrin is, is, is pressing the crowd and manipulating the crowd and trying to manipulate him to crucify Jesus. He can see behind it and actually he says it. He says, for he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. 
So he knew that it was jealousy. He knew the motives behind the religious leaders of the Jews was jealousy. That's why they wanted Jesus killed. Pilate can see envy and jealousy behind the words and actions of the Jewish leaders. But the greater point is this about Jesus. Jesus was not only not guilty of the charges that were brought against him, he was not only not guilty, but he was perfectly innocent of all guilt. Jesus was perfectly innocent of all guilt. Jesus is perfectly innocent. He's not just innocent of the charges that the Sanhedrin brought before Pilate and Herod, but he is perfectly innocent of all guilt. This is who Jesus is. Jesus is perfectly innocent. And this is the testimony of Scripture about Jesus. 700 years before the birth of Christ, the prophet Isaiah wrote this about Jesus, about our Savior, Isaiah 53, 9. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Do you see it? Jesus is perfectly innocent. The prophet Isaiah prophesied that he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. That word violence is the word Hamas in the Hebrew. Did you know that? Hamas. He had done no violence. Hamas. Hamas means destruction, lawlessness, terror, evil. He had no deceit in his mouth. It means deception, dishonesty, treachery. He was not a man of violence, and he was not a man of lying. You know what the Bible says in the book of James about us, about our tongue? Uh, James 3, verse 2 says, For we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man. Jesus had no deceit in his mouth. He was a perfect man, perfectly innocent. In fact, the writer of Hebrews says this, Hebrews 7, 26, for it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. One of the questions that came in that we're not answering tonight that I'll answer right now was, was Jesus born with a sinful nature? The answer is no. Why? Jesus was not born stained with a sinful nature. That is the truth that arises out from the reality of the virgin birth. Jesus was conceived of the Holy Spirit. So he was not born with a sinful nature. He is perfectly righteous. Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to, to, to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin did not sin. So what do we have in this story right here in this moment? Pilate knows that he's innocent of the charges that have been brought before him. His wife has been warned in a dream to warn her husband, tell him to have nothing to do with that righteous man. So what we have right now in this account, this second interrogation of Pilate and Jesus is perfect righteousness withstanding in front of Pilate. Perfect righteousness sinless perfection was standing in front of the shouting mob can you see the scene Pilate is standing it would have been elevated up the crowd would have been below and Jesus is in front of Pilate he's talking to them pleading them three times I find no guilt in him why 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 crucifixion 
And they're pleading and they're shouting, the shouting mob and standing in front of the shouting mob and standing next to Pilate and the religious leaders of the Jews is sinless perfection. Sinless perfection. From a human perspective, from a human perspective, we have no category for this type of perfection because we know nothing of it. Just, just like this idea, this, not this idea, this truth that Jesus is eternal and he, he dwells outside of time. He dwells outside of time, but for us, we are controlled by time, right? Our life is ruled by time. We get up at a certain time. We go to work at a certain time. If you're late for work, you are going to get in trouble. We are ruled by time. And so we have no category for a God who is, who is eternal and dwells outside of time. And in that same way, we have no category for a man who is perfectly righteous, the God-man who is perfectly righteous and holy in every area. We can't comprehend that. Why? Because we are not perfectly righteous. Because we aren't sinless. You know, all we know in our life is hypocrisy to some degree or another. We make a profession of faith, but all we know to some degree or another is hypocrisy. It's like, it's like the dad who was driving home from church. The dad drives home from church and he, he complains about everything on the way home from church. He complained about the length of the service. He complained about the music. Why that song? He complained about the preacher and his, his, his long message. He complained and he complained. He even complained about the coffee. He's complaining, 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 complaining. He gets home and he gets all the food together and sits down with his wife and his son, get ready to eat lunch, and he bows his head and he prays, Father, we thank you for this food. In Jesus' name, amen. The seven-year-old son speaks up and says, Dad, did God hear everything you said on the way home from church? <laughs> yes, son, God heard everything I said on the way home from church. Dad, did God hear everything you just said when you prayed for the food? Yes, son, God heard everything I said. Well, Dad, which prayer, which words does God believe is true? All we know is hypocrisy to some degree or another. But standing in front of Pilate was no hypocrisy, no guile, no sin, sinless perfection. And speaking about the spotless lamb, the spotless lamb who was Jesus, Jesus was spotless and without blemish. And speaking to God's people about the sacrificial system, the sacrifice for sin in particular when it came to Passover and Exodus and God commanded the children of Israel to get a lamb and to roast a lamb and to eat a lamb. What was the, what was the commandment he gave them? Exodus 12, your lamb shall be without blemish. Numbers 28, it's concerning the sacrificial system. See that, the, that they are without blemish. And so who is Jesus? Jesus was the spotless lamb of God that was foreshadowed in the sacrificial system. 1 Peter 1 tells us that knowing that you were ransomed with the precious blood of Christ. The sacrificial system was about blood. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. Jesus through Jesus, knowing that you were ransomed with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. This is who Christ is. In this story, Jesus is perfectly innocent, not just innocent of the charges brought before 
Pilate, but he is perfectly innocent. He is spotless. He is sinless perfection. Jesus is perfect righteousness, perfect holiness. Jesus, Galatians 5, Galatians 5, Jesus is perfect love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. He's perfection. And when we stop and think about that, what, what should our response be when we think about this reality of who Jesus is? What should our response be? Our response should be worship. Our response should be awe and wonder at who our God is. Reverential fear. A fear of God. A reverential fear of God that this is our God. Our God is holy. Our God is righteous. Our God is perfectly clean and just. This is our God. He's not like us. He is separate than us. We should have a reverential fear of our God. This is our God. Listen, here's my question to, to all of us, to me and to you. What, what, what is your view of Jesus? Do you see Jesus correctly? Or have you brought Jesus down to a human level? Have you brought Jesus down in your mind? and tried to make him like us. You, you will hear people talk about Jesus being their best friend, or, or me and Jesus are tight. Listen. Listen, Jesus is the exact image of the invisible God. Jesus is not just a good feeling or a sentimental experience. Jesus is perfect holiness. Jesus is eternal God. Jesus is Lord. This is our God. The one standing in front of Pilate right now is the eternal God who is perfect in righteousness and holiness. Jesus is innocent. What do we see in this exchange between Jesus and Barabbas? We see that Jesus is perfectly innocent. What about Barabbas? What do we see in Barabbas? Well, Barabbas, Barabbas was guilty as charged. Jesus is perfectly innocent, but not Barabbas. Barabbas was guilty. Look to the text. John 18, 40, they cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a robber. Barabbas was a robber. So why, why would the Romans release a prisoner once a year during Passover? I believe that it's pretty straightforward. The reason they would release one prisoner a year to the Jews, a Jewish prisoner, it was to show, to manipulate Israel into believing that they were sympathetic oppressors. We'll show mercy once per year in a public way to show you that we're, gen we're, we're kind, we're merciful when we want to be. But who was Barabbas? We don't know much about Barabbas. The Bible doesn't really go into a lot of detail about Barabbas, but what we do see is, is in all four Gospels. In Matthew, uh, Matthew's account says that Barabbas was a notorious prisoner. So he was... He was known. He wasn't just an obscure prisoner. He wasn't a prisoner that people didn't know about. He was notorious. He had a, a known record. Well, what, what was his record? What did he do? Barabbas, Mark tells us, Barabbas had committed murder in the insurrection. So now we're seeing who Barabbas is. He was famous for leading an insurrection, and in his leading of an insurrection, he committed murder. This is Barabbas. Luke tells us that he started an, an insurrection and committed murder. John tells us he is a robber. So put that all together, what do we have? Barabbas was an evil man who was willing to rebel against authority, to incite others to follow him, to steal, to fund his insurrection, and then to ultimately kill those who got in his way. This is Barabbas. 
Who's Barabbas in this exchange? This is Barabbas. He's evil. He was guilty as charged. Pilate's wife is not having dreams or losing sleep about Barabbas and his righteousness. Barabbas is guilty as charged. Barabbas in this story, listen, Barabbas in this story represents the polar opposite of Jesus. The differences could not be any more stark. Perfect righteousness, notoriously evil. Can you see it? Think about other, thought about other notoriously wicked people in the Bible. You know, the Bible's full of wicked people from the beginning to the end. Just wickedness everywhere. I thought, man, I'm going to go through a list of wicked people, but I thought if I go too long, we're going to all be discouraged and depressed. But let's just think about a few uh, uh, wicked people like Barabbas. How about the evil kings of Israel? What did the evil kings of Israel do? Well, the evil kings of Israel would throw off God's law and follow idols and pagan idolatry and would lead people to reject God. Now think about how evil that is. I want you to ponder this for a moment. When leaders lead God's people away from him, when God's leaders lead his people away from him to worship false gods, that is evil. When God's leaders teach false doctrine, it's evil. The evil kings of Israel, you had Jeroboam, Nadab, Ahab, Ahab and Jezebel, right? What about these other evil men, the men of Sodom? Genesis 19, right? Angels come to visit, to warn Lot, judgment's coming. The homosexual men in the community, look, chapter 19, but before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man, surrounded the house. They called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Evil king, kings of Israel, the men of Sodom. What about King Herod? I think this is a category all by itself. When Jesus was born, Matthew 2, then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old and under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Wow. Killed all the male children two years and older in Bethlehem. Matthew goes on to say, weeping and wailing and mourning, refusing to be comforted was what was the result of this treachery and this evil from King Herod. What about Judas? We've talked about Judas in John. John 18, now Judas who betrayed him also knew the place for Jesus often met there with his disciples. You see the evil in Judas's heart? He knew where Jesus often went. You know, you know who knows where you often go? Who knows where you often go? Your family, your friends, your closest people in your life. Think about the betrayal. Judas knew where Jesus often went. And because of his knowledge, his intimate knowledge of Christ, He used that as a catalyst, as a leverage point to betray the Son of God. Guilty as charged. Evil men doing evil things. No justifications, no sugarcoating from the evil kings of Israel all the way down to Barabbas. Evil men doing evil deeds. 
And you know, those, those evil people doing evil deeds are not limited to the Bible times. I, 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 think, I think back through, through human history, you think of Hitler and Nazi Germany. That comes to mind when you think of evil men doing evil things. You think about Islamic terrorism and 9-11. I, I will never forget where I was on 9-11. And neither have you forgotten where you were on 9-11 when the planes flew into the tower. Evil men doing evil things. I think about mass shootings. You had a shooting at the chief's victory parade, but you have other shootings that take place in schools and places of business. And you think of the evil that comes into the heart of people, men and women, to do evil things. Evil things. How do we process these things? How do we process evil? We have a hard time processing perfect righteousness. We also have a hard time processing evil in people and evil in society. Men like Barabbas who are robbers and thieves and murderers and and men like Hitler and men like Stalin and Islamic terrorists. And we we have a hard time processing what it would take for somebody to go into a school and to, to kill children. How do we process that? How do we think about notoriously wicked people? In this account, Barabbas was being set free and Jesus being crucified in his place. And and this is a travesty of justice. The truth is is that we often, and when we think about these notoriously evil, evil people and acts of evil, is we often fail to judge accurately. Is that we often compare ourselves to the worst of sinners. We compare ourselves to the worst of sinners, and we, 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 when we think about it, we, we think about what we are not and what they are. The problem is, in our judgment, is that we're comparing ourselves to the wrong standard. And so when we look at this story of Jesus and Barabbas, we don't see ourselves in Barabbas, because we don't murder, and we are not thieves, and and we, we see Jesus' sinless perfection, and we struggle with all of these. These are the things that, that we struggle with in our thinking. Jesus is perfectly innocent, perfect holiness, sinless perfection. Barabbas was guilty. He was notoriously wicked. He was famous for his sin, and, and we struggle to, to fit all of that together in our minds. Where do we fit? What about us? What about us? I, I, I don't really fully understand Jesus, and, and, and I can put these people in a category because they are extremely wicked, but what about us? Well, I don't think this, the Bible here leaves us out because it wasn't just Jesus who was in the story. It wasn't just a notoriously evil man in the story. There was the crowd was in the story. The crowd failed to judge righteously. Look back. Look at Matthew's account of the crowd, Matthew 27. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, which of the two do you want me to release to you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? They all said, let him be crucified. Let him be crucified, the crowd says. I mean, what's happening in this scene? What's happening in this scene is a mob mentality. Mark's account shows us more of the mob mentality that was present. Look at Mark 15, verse 12. Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? They cried out again. They cried out, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. What's going on here? Jesus has been drugged before Pilate again. The Jewish authorities have convinced the crowd to cry for Jesus' death. 
And they all asked Pilate to release for them a prisoner, as is their custom. And Pilate questions him. He says, why? Why? He's not guilty. The charges you're bringing, it doesn't line up. But they cry all the more, crucify, crucify. Give us Barabbas away with Jesus. Give us. We, we, we'll take the criminal. We'll take the thief. We'll take the murderer. We'll take him, but away with Jesus. The crowd had slowly gathered to witness this interrogation and was now a mob of people who were in a frenzy and shouting louder and louder for the innocent Son of God to be killed. The crowd, Jesus, perfectly innocent. Barabbas, guilty as charged, but the crowd judging unrighteously. J.C. Ryle notes this about the crowd. Such was their utter hardness, bitterness, cruelty, and hatred for our Lord that they would rather have Barabbas set free than Jesus. Nothing would satisfy them but Christ's blood. They publicly declared they liked a thief and a murderer better than Christ. They publicly declare they like the thief and a murderer better than Christ. The word cried is a significant word in this story. Cried out, cried out. This crowd's crying out. The word cried is the same word used when Jesus called Lazarus out of the grave. That word cried, when it says the crowd cried out, crucify him, is the same word used to describe when Jesus cried out, to dead Lazarus, to come out of the grave. Jesus cried out, and what did Jesus do when he cried out? He brought life from death. This crowd, the ones for whom Jesus gave them life in their lungs, cried out that Jesus should die. The one who gave them life, they're crying out that he would die. Cried out. You know, that word cried has another connection. This same crowd who is crying out for the crucifixion of Jesus is the same crowd who a few days earlier were crying out something else. You remember what they were crying out? They weren't crying out crucifixion on Jesus and death to Jesus. What were they crying out? Jesus is heading to Jerusalem a few days earlier to Passover. The throngs of Jews have gathered from all over the region to celebrate the feast of Passover. Do you remember? We talked about Passover earlier, and they had to have a, a, a perfect spotless lamb to sacrifice, to eat, before the death angel came, so they would be atoned for. This is the feast of Passover. The Jews are there. This crowd, those who would have been in this crowd crying for his death, Matthew 21 says they were saying something different. The disciples went. Matthew 21, starting at verse 6, the disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna! In the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. The crowd shouting. Luke adds this. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to them, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very 
stones would cry out. The word cry. The crowd that's crying for his crucifixion had earlier cried his praise that he was the son of David, that he was the Messiah. They had declared Hosanna in the highest. They were laying palm branches down. They were worshiping him. They were, they were celebrating this Jesus, this same crowd, shouts of praise so loud that the Pharisees took notice and said, shut them up, Jesus. That same crowd was now calling for his blood. They went from crying out that Jesus was a Christ to crying out that he was a criminal. The fickle crowd. Jesus, in, in essence, had gone from a hero to a villain. He had gone from a hero to an anti-hero. You know, I was thinking about heroes and anti-heroes and the process of going from a hero to, an, to, a, to a villain, you know, what, what, what do they say? You know, if you're a hero now, live long enough to become the villain. There's one account of a story, a true story, of a man named Fritz, Fritz Haber, before World War II, he's a Jew, before World War II, invented the chemical process for the fertilization of crops. And as a result of his technology, crop production as we know it has been impacted and millions and millions of people around the world are fed through the process that he created, the chemical process he created. He won a Nobel Peace Prize for it, Fritz Haber. He was a Jew, hero. But years later, his technology was used to create Zyklon B, which was the chemical used to murder millions of his own people during the Holocaust. Villain, hero. To villain, Nobel Peace Prize to his technology being used for evil. Listen, Jesus is the Son of God. Spent three and a half years doing good, healing, restoring, working countless miracles. The crowds that followed him grew and grew and grew and grew and culminated in Jerusalem, culminated in the triumphal entry, culminated in palm branches, culminated in Hosanna in the highest. And now that same crowd Hero to villain, hero to criminal, has turned on him from Christ to criminal. From Christ to criminal. So, so how do we process this? Jesus is perfectly innocent. Barabbas is notoriously evil. Guilty as charged. And the crowd, this fickle crowd, where, where, how do we, where do we find ourselves? Where are we in all of this? We know we're not Jesus. And, and, and we, we, we don't think we're like Barabbas. And we hope we're not like the crowd. But how often are we like the fickle crowd? We may not be like Barabbas. We've not done evil things to the level of this notoriously evil man in history. But listen, we can often find ourselves incrementally going the way of the cultural crowd who rejects Jesus and his lordship. I had another question come in that we're not going to answer tonight. I'm going to answer right now. Ask about spiritual warfare. What about spiritual warfare? I'll tell you about spiritual warfare. Spiritual warfare is a battle for our minds. That's where the battle of spiritual warfare is. The battle of spiritual warfare is not, is not some mystical thing that's out in space. 
The battle of spiritual warfare is in our minds. Paul says in 2 Corinthians that we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion that is raised against the knowledge of God. The cultural shift in our society, the, 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 the shifting and the moving and the pushing away from all things biblical, all things God, all things Christ. Even as Christians, we, we can become like the fickle crowd and the things that we said we would never do, never, atone, ne, never approve of, never go, never watch, never say, we can, we can incrementally drift because the cultural push is like, is like, a, is like a, a force of a hurricane wind blowing in our society. Sometimes we get caught up in it. The point is this. Jesus is perfectly innocent. Barabbas was perfectly guilty as charged. And the crowd judged unrightly. Or, or, or how about this? Said a different way. Romans 3, what then? What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. Barabbas is under sin. Notoriously evil people are under sin. The crowd is under sin. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good. No, not one. So where do we find ourselves? Uh, we know we're not Jesus. We know we're not perfectly righteous. We like to think we would never do what Barabbas would do. Murder. We like to think we're not like the crowd, but, but what does the Bible tell us? It's, it tells us that no one is good. Where do we find ourselves? We find ourselves right here in Romans 3, or said yet another way, written 700 years, Isaiah 53, 700 years before Paul wrote Romans 3, Isaiah 53, 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. From Barabbas to the crowd and everyone in between, we've all turned away, everyone to their own way. And none of us, none of us can sit in judgment over any other person because we've all turned away. Everyone stands condemned. Listen, everyone stands condemned. No one can get out of the punishment that sin demands. The punishment is eternal. The punishment for sin is eternal. Yes, we can have temporary consequences for our earthly sinful choices. But the ultimate punishment for sin is eternal punishment. Every single soul present on this earth now will live forever. Every single soul present will live forever. And they will either live forever eternally in heaven or forever eternally in hell separate from God. The punishment is eternal judgment and torment in hell. So where do we find ourselves, right? There's only one place that you can hope to find yourself, and that's the good news. The good news is that the king took the place of the criminal. That's the good news. The king took the place of the criminal. And where do we find ourselves? Here's where we find ourselves. The reality is, is that we are all criminals. That's Romans 3. That's Isaiah 53. We're all criminals. 
Ephesians chapter 2 says we were dead in our trespasses and sins in which we once walked. And the eternal king of creation put on flesh, for God so loved the world that he gave. He put on flesh to become the spotless lamb who would take the place of criminals and die a criminal's death. And this is the message of Christianity. It's not any other message. It's not a self-help message. It's not, it's not a message of how to become a better human being in the short 70, 80 years that you live this earth, live on this earth. That's not the message of Christianity. It's a message that hell and judgment is coming. And that the only way to escape that is to throw yourself over on to the mercy of Christ. This is the message. It's a message of substitution, penal penalty, penal, substitutionary atonement. Jesus taking the penalty of sin on Himself and making atonement for all of those who would believe in Him. Belief is is where it's at. Faith and belief. Belief and faith. So, just to be clear, Jesus was no sixth man. Just to be clear, my illustration is not to communicate that Jesus was a sixth man. (laughs) Jesus was number one. He was the one who created the one he would sub in for. Jesus in place of Barabbas. Jesus in place of the crowd. That's Christianity. This is what we see in this beautiful account of Jesus and Barabbas. And I think one of the clearest sections of Scripture in all of the Bible, this is the clearest section of Scripture in all of the Bible that describes substitutionary atonement in the heart of Christianity is considered by many to be the first gospel. The first gospel is Isaiah 53. It's the first gospel. It's the gospel written before Christ was born. Isaiah 53, starting at verse 1. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely, he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquity. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And so on that cross, The wrath of God, Isaiah 53.10, says that it pleased the Lord. It was the will of the Lord to crush Him. So on that cross, as Christ laid on that cross, 
the wrath of God fell on the innocent, perfectly innocent Son of God. And He took the place of all of those who would believe in Him by faith. And He absorbed the wrath of God and the penalty for sin, which was death. And He died a criminal's death so that we who place our faith in Him can be forgiven. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Amen.